Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Foothill Bible Church. We're glad that you could be here with us this morning. We have a special day ahead as we worship together, as we see and hear of God's work in uh, people's lives. We get to uh, see some folks be baptized this morning and get to hear from the Word of God. It's going to be a special day. want to say, if this is your first time with us at Foothill, we're glad that you could be with us. And uh, we greet you in the Lord. We know that God in His providence has brought you here. And we hope that you are able to find a church home here at Foothill Bible Church. We encourage you to uh, take a card that's in the pew rack in front of you. If you're in this room, if you're in a different place on campus, you'll find one in the back of that area, that room. And uh, if you don't mind filling this out, take it out onto the patio after the service. And there'll be some folks there at our Connect Corner that will be able to greet you and to be able to receive that card, be able to answer any questions that you have about the church. We're just glad that you're able to be here, and we pray that you'll be able to get rooted here and be ministered to. A few announcements for us as we get started this morning. First is that we have coming up next week our first Courtyard Grill of the summer. And uh, for those of you who have joined our fellowship in the last couple years. This is going to be new to you. We had this a couple summers ago. And so just want to explain so you all know what this is. It is a, uh, a time after the service in which we, uh, we grill hamburgers and hot dogs and we offer them at a minimal cost. We simply want to cover the cost of the food, but provide an opportunity for all of you to linger afterward and to talk and chat together, a time to grow in fellowship with each other. And so that'll be after service on these two days starting next week. And uh, I just want to say for those of you who are visiting this week, or maybe you've been with us for a uh, period of time, but you have not yet uh, maybe filled out a Connect card and really sought to uh, kind of take the next steps in terms of getting plugged in, then um, next week uh, we will exchange a Connect card for uh, a free lunch. So if you have joined us in the last year or so, and Scout's honor on, on that, that uh, that uh, we want you to be able to have a lunch on us and just to be able to begin to fellowship with people here. So if you're relatively new and particularly if you have not yet filled out a Connect card, we want to trade you a lunch for a, uh, a Connect card. So um, and even if you filled one out and you're relatively new, we, we want, to, want to give you a lunch too. So uh, we're not <clears throat> trying to be stingy with this. We just want to foster fellowship and get, get you all connected, get to know one another. So uh, we're going to have a great time next week at our Courtyard Grill. If you have any questions about that, you can contact the church office or go to the Connect Corner and they'll be able to clear up anything that I made muddy. Um, anyway, next is the Fishers of Men trip, guys camping and fishing trip. So if you're one of those guys that just loves to get dirty for a week and uh, fish day after day and camp uh, and do that with other guys, sons, this is a great uh, time to do that. Go up to the High Sierras and uh, and spend time with one another, fellowshipping together and getting dirty and having fun in the great outdoors. So uh, signups 
begin uh, are, are, are happening. They're out on the patio. And so if you're interested in that, you can go out to the table out there, have any questions answered, as well as to be able to sign up there, the guys camping and fishing trip. And thirdly, uh, this morning, uh, we have our picnic at the end of the month to uh, say goodbye to the Rees, but it's also a time for us to just to get together and fellowship and have a great time as a church body. We have not had an all-church picnic like this for two years, and so this is a great time for us to all get out for uh, maybe, again, you've joined us uh, in the last few years. This is a great time to get to mingle and interact with lots of folks in the body. Uh, We need you to sign up if you're able to attend, so that way we know how much food to prepare and bring to that. So uh, there's a sign-up that is online through our This Week at FBC email. But we're also going to need some volunteers because we've got uh, lots of fun things planned and we need people to, uh, to, to man those stations and to make those fun things happen. So if you're able to serve, and, and don't worry, you're not going to serve for the whole picnic time. There's different time slots that you can serve and be a part of this. But it's going to take all hands on deck in order to give everyone a great time. And so the signups for those volunteer slots, not for the picnic and the food, but for the volunteer slots... Uh, are going to be out on the patio, okay? So sign up to attend online. Sign up to serve and and volunteer is out on the patio. So stop by, look at that, see if there's a time slot that you can sign up for and help us have a great day there on uh, June 27th. It'll be a Sunday. It'll be in the evening, uh, 4 to 7 p.m., and it'll be at Sierra Vista Park here in Upland. So we are uh, looking forward to that. All right, well, we are here today to worship Christ. And I just want to remind you of a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes to the church there in Ephesus, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, this is the great gospel truths and reality, is that though we were dead, stone cold, spiritually dead, God, in his mercy and his great love, 
made us alive together with Christ. We have new life this morning, church. We can celebrate and worship and rejoice because of that life, what the Bible calls everlasting life. And we have much to rejoice in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good morning, Foothill Bible. Let's all stand and rejoice. We have eternal life in Christ alone. Let's sing. city of our God. 
Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It is a great and glorious day this morning, and it's a special day for the life of the body of Christ here. And it's because we have testimonies of three people who desire to express their allegiance to Christ. And, and based on their profession, you know, they're just not, um, they may be ones you may know or may not know, but after their profession, just to know that they're fellow heirs of the grace of life and that they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is a great joy and privilege for me as I introduce our first, first brother here, Matt Sanger. It happens to be his birthday as well. And so... Hello, Foothill Bible Church. Good morning. Wow, you guys really take it uh, literally. This is hot water. Jesus uh, <laughs> said not lukewarm, so you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I would start my testimony off with a with an icebreaker, but there's no ice to break in here, so. <laughs> Hello, my name is Matthew Sanger. I was born on June 6, 1995. Although today marks the day of my natural birth, I'm going to speak about my spiritual rebirth. As the saying goes, I was raised Christian, going to, a Christ going to Christian churches as far back as I can remember. However, I wouldn't say that I truly was a Christian, because I didn't really follow Christ. I may have had church attendance and a knowledge of Christ, but I didn't have Christ. I was unwilling to repent of my sin because I was enjoying the pleasures of sin too much. Eventually, after 22 years of living for myself, my conscience confronted me with this question. Why do I even call myself a Christian when I act and talk no differently from a non-Christian? With this confronting question, I came to myself and realized that I did not know God in a relational way. I was convinced of the simple truth that in order to get to know God, I must read his word daily. So I prayed my first genuine prayer that my Heavenly Father listened to. I asked him to reveal himself to me through his word and to keep me on his righteous path. Since that day, toward the end of 2017, I no longer bear the weight of a guilty conscience burdened by sin, but I rejoice in the pardon I have because I have been saved by and from my Lord Jesus Christ. It is good news indeed that the Son of God has lived a sinless life of obedience to the Father, that he has died in my stead, and that he is risen. Amen? Amen. Well, Matt, it's, thank you for just sharing, and I'm going to have you stand here. And just based on 
your profession of faith publicly, um, I have the privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You okay? Sarah. It is warm. <laughs> it's so hot. Good morning. My name is Sarah Castaneda. I was raised by a single mother who claimed Catholicism over my family. My whole life, I have always seen my mother pray and anytime, pray anytime plans are made or things were uncertain. She would always tell us, si Dios quiere, in English meaning Lord willing. I always knew there was a God, but living through my circumstances of a broken household, extreme poverty, seeing mom cry most nights, and having a near medical death experience when I was 12, I never believed we had an almighty good God. I first heard the gospel when I was 16 years old. I prayed a prayer of salvation soon after, but in the last 10 years of my life, I have been ignorant and continuing to choose sin to have power over my life. I truly loved my sin more than God. When I was 21, I began my career in law enforcement and found myself having a hardened heart towards humanity and rarely saw the goodness in life. In my heart, I was bitter and ungrateful. <laughs> I continued to go to church through seasons. I prayed when things weren't going my way and I read scripture to help my sanity probably even prayed the prayer of salvation time and time again, but I never truly surrendered to Jesus. One year ago, I found out I was pregnant, out of wedlock with a man I had only been dating less than a year. I felt devastated and, to be honest, embarrassed. I began to think about all the sin I had chosen that had led me to where I was. I began to ask myself if that was the life I wanted to bring our son into, and the answer was simple, no. Jesus began to place people in my life sitting in this congregation today who encouraged me to cry out to Jesus and repent of my sins. To come to the cross because we have a good God. All things I had already known but never truly understood. So I recently cried out to Jesus repenting of my sin and claiming him as king over my life. I began to attend Fahel Bible Church and surrounded myself with incredible women who were clear reflection of Jesus Christ they're with their kind hearts, giving personalities, and selflessness. About four months ago, when my son was born, I opened up the Bible and dove into God's Word, never expecting for the Holy Spirit to completely take control of my heart and change me. I began to understand that Christ lived, died, and rose again for sinners like me. And through repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved from the wrath of God we deserve and instead be granted eternal life with him in heaven. In John 3, I encountered a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee and influential Jew. I read about how he had so many questions for Jesus and wrestled with the concept of the gospel just like I have time and time again. Within a few short verses, he collides with the gospel in John 3.16. 
where Jesus says, For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Here was a Bible verse everyone knows. I had always read and heard. It's, in our, it's on our in and out cups, football helmets, merchandise at Hobby Lobby. The list goes on. Never did I understand it in the way the Holy Spirit had allowed me to do so now. I began to feel differently about sin. I wanted no part in it. I began to feel ashamed for cursing, living in sin with my son's father, idolizing my career, and so much more. All things that kept me away from eternal life with our saving father. The Holy Spirit did a work in my heart and I truly have been renewed. Recently, I've learned what God's word says about baptism. And I know that standing up here shows my long-term disobedience and ignorance of what God commands us to do. But now I want to publicly declare my identification in our Lord and his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with him in newness of life. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Well, Sarah, it is with great joy that I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Andrew Nakamura, and we're going to try to get through this as best we can, because as many of you are aware, as evidence behind me, the emotional genes in this family run very strong. Oh, wow. so, for, <laughs> so for those of you who may not know me, I am the oldest of the Nakamura siblings. The one uh, many of you may not know, because up until the last several months, it has been several years since I was last here, or any church for that matter. I was born into a Christian family and raised in this very church. I professed faith at a young age and even got baptized in these very waters when I was a teen. My parents were missionaries and later a pastor here, so by all accounts, I was the ultimate Christian kid. After all, I was an MK and a PK. I was a part of, I was a part of the many different ministries at church and often helped out with the neighborhood outreach events. However, I, like everyone, was born a sinner, and I loved my sin more than I loved God. And even though I had professed faith in God and by all outward actions appeared to be a follower of Christ, I was instead one who loved the world and the things of it. My facade was only held up by the Christian bubble I was in, and my true self would be exposed soon. As I grew into adulthood, I became more spiritually distant from both my family and the church. Sunday mornings became more of a routine checkbox. I would slowly watch the clock go by, eager to get out of the long and boring sermons that I never paid attention to. Any other church activities I went to only because of friends or not to completely disappoint my parents. When I turned 18, I got a job at UPS, and this was my first experience in the real world without the protection and watchful eye of my parents, straight into the depths of this sinful world. Shortly after, I also began uh, my career in law enforcement, and before too long, I simply stopped playing the church game. I started slowly, first blaming the job and work schedule for my lack of attendance at church, and before too long, anything remotely spiritual was removed from my life, and I had dived headfirst into the extreme of living in sin and worldliness. I still talked to family and friends from church, but anytime anything related to God or repentance came up, I would casually brush it off, 
or claim that I was going through some stuff, or sometimes even get angry and storm off. What was worse off for me was I never rejected that there was a God. I knew God was real. I still believed everything I had been taught, and I knew I was living in sin and denial of him. Hebrews 10, 26-27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And while this was, would sometimes cause me to grow fearful, especially with a job that is constantly surrounded by the realities of death, sin and the enticements of this world had a deathly grip over my soul that was literally dragging me into the depths of hell. But God... But God, in his infinite mercy and grace, had their plans for my life. About two years ago, the Lord graciously brought my fiance into my life at work of all places. Though she too had professed faith when she was younger, we had both given into our fleshy desires and were living lives of sin before we met and continued to live in sin together. Even after we found out she was pregnant, I refused to humble myself before God and confess that I was in complete rebellion of Him. God opened her eyes much faster than mine, and He used her to constantly prod me, push me, and question where I was in my faith. Pride became one of my biggest enemies now. How could I, a missionary kid raised in the church, whose dad was a pastor, humble myself to admit that I had never truly repented and humble myself to stand before you this day? More recently, one of the devil's recent attempts at having control over my life was the excuse that I mentioned to numerous friends and family. I just need time to figure everything out. Maybe I was saved before and just fell away. It wasn't until some deep talks with some close friends, along with one of Micah's recent sermons from Luke about the parable of the sowers, that one day a few weeks ago it finally hit me. I had never truly repented of my sins. I was like one of the sower's seeds falling upon the thorns and being eaten up by the lies and deception of the world. The past 29 years of my life, I have been living in denial and rejection of the very truth I used to pretend to know. As James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I had not only befriended the world, everything I lived and breathed was in the world. I was a living, breathing, full-on enemy of the very God who created me. With that, I was left with only the question of how could I, somebody who had fully embraced sin and lived in enmity with the all-powerful, all-knowing God, even after knowing the truth, be saved and made new by grace and grace alone. Because of Christ's death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, can I stand here today, a sinful and hopeless human being, saved only by the grace of God and placing my faith in him. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Only, oh, excuse me, only by God's amazing grace have I been uh, spared both a physical and eternal death to be able to come to this point where I stand before you professing my faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I can only ref reflect with awe on God's abundant mercy in my life when he spared me so many times from death's door, especially so that I can stand before you today proclaiming his name and singing his praises. So I stand before you today to take this first, first act of obedience with a public declaration of faith and asking for you to keep me accountable, to pray for me and my family, that we might all grow closer in our walks with him and be a representation of his amazing works in our lives. To God be the glory forever and ever.
in the family. <laughs> well, it is with great, great joy. I baptize you now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a special day, not only personally and for the lives of these three individuals, but for the life of the, the church body, because as we see God's work of grace changing, transforming lives one person at a time, um, and to testify that is a work of God, and so we give glory to God. But there are some of you here who have heard, who can relate to either Matt or Sarah or Andrew's testimony that maybe you've been exposed to the gospel, you've heard about who God is, you've heard about that, what Christ has done, but you have not repented, you've not confessed in your sins to God, the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ. May I appeal to you? Today's, there's no other, there is no better day than today. And if you have questions about baptism, why should I get baptized? May I urge, may I implore you to come talk to one of us, one of the elders. You know, all three of them voluntarily came to one of the elders and says, you know, I want to move forward in baptism. This is not a coercion. This is one that God has impressed upon them. And I just trust that others here in this room will do likewise. And so we just give glory to God for all that he's done. And so I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer at this time and uh, join with me. Our Heavenly Father, it's, we marvel at your mercy and, and that you are mighty God. You are mighty to save. And this morning, we have heard the work of your grace through the lives of three individuals, Matt Sanger, Sarah Castaneda, soon to be Nakamura, and Andrew Nakamura. And we praise you for the fact that it is you being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, even each one has testified that they were dead in their trespasses. You made them alive together with Christ. Indeed, it is the grace that each one who declares their faith in Christ have been saved and will be raised up with him and sealed with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you once again that you who began a good work within each of their lives will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And your word declares through the Apostle Paul that I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. We pray for Matt and for Sarah and for Andrew to follow the pattern of the sound words that they heard through the scriptures in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We ask that your spirit who dwells within each believer to guard the good deposit entrusted to them. Father, we know that each one will be tested. May you fortify them with truth to withstand the accuser who will tempt them to doubt their testimony. Keep them from falling into sinful patterns to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Help them to keep their eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith. Father, we thank you for the means of baptism as a demonstration of a public appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May their testimonies inspire others in this room who have not been following Christ, who have not obeyed your word on baptism. Oh, please grant the gift of repentance and faith to step forward and publicly declare their testimony and allegiance to following Christ. Now, as we continue in our worship, help us to continue to sing with joy, to listen to your words as Pastor Micah preaches on Luke chapter 9 in the feeding of the 5,000. Your word is true. And so we ask that you teach us that we may gain a heart of wisdom and worship. And we ask in the name of the one who is able to save Jesus Christ. Amen. God is good. Amen. Let's all stand and continue to lift our souls in praise to him.
every blessing tune my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious song sung by flaming tongues above praise the mountain fix upon it mount of thy redeeming love here i raise my ebenezer hither by thy help i've come Safely to arrive at home. Jesus saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. To grace our great attainer, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. to wonder, Lord, I feel it. to shall see thy lovely face full of radiant blood washed linen how I'll sing thy lovely grace come my Lord no longer tarry bring thy promises to pass for I know thy will keep me till I'm home with thee at last for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last Amen. Please be seated.
Later in the service, we will be participating in communion together. And if you were not able to pick up communion elements when you came in, we have those that are able to uh, get those to you now in your seat. So, uh, gentlemen, if you could come forward, and if you could just kind of raise your hand and, and flag them down, they'll, uh, they'll be able to get that to you, uh, get it to you now, so that you'll have it available uh, when we uh, participate of that later on in the service. Well, it has been a special day, has it not? So, so sweet. And we've been able to hear of God's amazing grace for undeserving sinners. And today, our passage in Luke 9 will continue with that theme. And so I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one that's there in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 1030, 1030 for Luke chapter 9. If you've been with us for some time, you know that we've been unpacking the book of Luke, one rich chapter, one rich passage at a time. Each time we open this book, we get a further portrait of Jesus Christ. We see his kindness and his compassion. We see his courage in the face of opposition. We see him devoted to his mission of calling sinners to believe and trust in him. In our passage today, we get to overhear Jesus training his 12 disciples. He wants to teach them a very important lesson on trusting him to provide all that they need. He wants them to depend on him in all circumstances. And we need to learn the very same lessons. Before we read the text this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, gracious Father, we do come before you as a group of redeemed sinners. We recognize that we have nothing by which to cause your attention to be directed to us. We have no righteousness of our own. We are absolutely bankrupt. And yet, we know that it was Christ who for our sake became sin. The one who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, we have given you praise today for your work of grace, and we pray now that you would continue to show us grace by directing our minds and our hearts and our wills to align with your word now. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, let's bow to, or not bow, but let's bow and look at our Bibles. <laughs> look down, I guess. Sorry. Uh, let's read the text. So Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 10 and read through verse 17. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, 
Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the, his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This Miracle that is recounted in this text is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is found in all four Gospels. As you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. They see similarly the life of Christ. And so when they accord, they, they have material that aligns with John, who had a different purpose and wrote lots of unique material. It's worthy of our attention. On this event, they all mention Jesus feeding the 5,000 men in Galilee. It was a pivotal event in the life of Jesus' ministry. After this event, he will begin to spend time more privately with his disciples. He will begin to take them away, begin to train them and prepare for his departure. And so this is a significant event in the life of Jesus and here in the book of Luke, we see Jesus training his disciples through this event. And so in these verses, I want uh, you to see three lessons to learn. Three lessons to learn in this passage about Jesus being the great provider of your needs. We have many needs, and Jesus is the great provider of those, and we see that here in this text. The first lesson that we need to learn here in these verses is that Jesus welcomes all people compassionately. Jesus welcomes all people compassionately. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10 begins, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And if you were with us last week, you, you, we, we addressed this part of the verse in which it is wrapping up the mission that Jesus had sent his apostles on. He told them to go and spread the news about himself to Israel, to the villages of Galilee. And here in verse 10, they return. They were to preach good news of the kingdom. They were to heal diseases. And Jesus even gave them authority to cast out demons. These men were indeed Jesus' special representatives. Being apostles, they had a, a task on uh, unlike anyone else. They had a power and authority that no one else had. And even though we live out the gospel and we are sharing the gospel, we do not have the same power and authority the apostles had to heal, to cast out demons, to do what they did. But it says here, verse 10, that they returned and they were successful. They they came back, and, and no doubt they were doing uh, what 
what children often do when they have something they're so excited about, right? They're talking over one another and trying to share about what they did and all the fun that they had. And they're like, okay, go, time out. Let me, let me hear from each of you individually here. Find out what, what happened. Imagine they were excited that the authority that they had actually enabled results to happen. And so they wanted to tell Jesus about it. And no doubt Jesus, the great trainer of men, wanted to hear these men, wanted to bring his disciples near and say, yes, yes, please tell me. What happened? What did you do? He wants to train these men. And so he wants to hear from them how they're processing, how they went through this, this mission that they went out on, this ministry that they engaged in. And so he wants to debrief with them. And so he pulls them aside. This is the, the end of verse 10. It says, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. He withdrew apart, meaning he, he pulled away privately. He wanted to get away with his men to help train them in this process. He wanted to get away from the crowds. It says that he went to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a town on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was a little ways from Capernaum, and it would provide Jesus some time alone. It would enable him to get away, or at so he thought. Because look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. In fact, the book of Mark tells us that they saw Jesus get into the boat with his disciples and go to Bethsaida, and they, the crowds realized they could get there on foot, and they, some of them run and get there ahead of Jesus and the disciples. So they leave the crowds, they get in the boat, they, they, the wind takes them just a little ways across the lake, they get to their landing point, and there's more crowds. And what would you do if you were a trainer and you had your men and you were trying to get away on a retreat and you get there and all of a sudden you realize that the very thing you were trying to leave is there. The ministry you're trying to take a break from has beat you to the, your, your retreat spot. Well, the amazing thing is that Jesus does not feel frustrated. He's not irritated. He's not going, oh, come on, guys. I was just, can I just get away from you for like one little bit? I'm just trying to get away with my disciples. Come on, give me a break. I'll get to you. No, he's not irritated in the least. Verse 11, look at it. It says, and he welcomed them. He welcomed them. This, Mark tells us, says that he looked out upon them with compassion because he realized they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart broke. Here we see the, the perfection of the Son of God who, who looks out upon sinners and realizes their desperate state. And therefore, he does not turn them away in their brokenness, but welcomes them in. He has compassion upon them, and it causes him to set aside the train, the 12, and launch into more ministry to these crowds. Verse 11 says that he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of, of the kingdom of God and cured those who who needed healing. And so he once again launches into teaching. He says, all right, crowds, you're here. Well, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I've arrived. You need to repent and to believe in me. And to confirm these claims, he continued to heal. And no doubt the people were wowed by this healing. He it says he, he cured those who had need of healing. And now you can imagine why people flocked to him. Why would people travel huge distances to go and to be where Jesus is, even run along the, 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 the lake shore to beat a boat? 
because this guy heals. How far would you go to get your medical condition cured if you know that there was a guy who could heal you? How far would you go to take a loved one to be healed? People flocked from all over because of the power that Jesus had. And it's in this scene that we see our Savior's compassionate acceptance of people. When people come to him in need, he doesn't turn them away. Now, even though Jesus is not physically with us today, he's still calling people to come to him. He's calling people to trust him, to believe in him. And get this, he's promised that those who come to him today, he will not cast out. The same heart of the Savior is with him today. John 6.37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus called out, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the question for us this morning, seeing who this Jesus is, is will you go to Jesus? Will you go to the one who has open arms and welcomes all to come to him? Some of you, as Pastor Art charged you, have, have sat maybe in the church for time, for a time, for years, but you have not gone to Jesus. You've seen of him. You've heard him. As Andrew shared, he heard of Christ. He learned of Christ, but he did not have Christ. Friends, each one of us individually must go to Jesus, embrace him, confess him individually that we might be saved. Maybe you've had a religious experience. You've had spiritual feelings or emotions when you've been around church. Again, Jesus calls for faith and trust, not just an experience. And in order to actually experience the salvation that Jesus offers, we must trust in him fully. He's not one among many options. He's not, I'll try this today and I'll try something else tomorrow. We, we rest everything, our eternal destiny, upon him to where we can say, if we were to die tonight, we are safe because we're, we're leaning upon him. We're resting upon him. My faith is completely in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Folks, Jesus is the only doctor who can heal your soul. He's the only judge that can clear your guilt. He's the only shepherd who can guide you in paths of righteousness. And he's the only God-man who bled on your behalf. Will you go to him? Will you today confess your sin, your rebellion, and trust him completely? Because he compassionately welcomes all to come to him. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, unfortunately, we can often neglect to go to Jesus even though we have believed in him. We say, yes, I do trust in Jesus for my eternal destiny. And yet on a daily basis, we neglect to actually go to him. We don't trust him in the midst of our daily battle. 
And yet this should not be so. Jesus welcomes us as well. Even those of us who are his children and yet we fail to trust him. We fail to go to him. He is compassionate to us as well. And he welcomes us whenever we turn to him. Remember, Jesus became like us so that he understands us. He knows our afflictions. He knows the struggles. And so we go to him. We need to go to him every day because he welcomes us compassionately. When anxieties creep into our minds, he will welcome us. When stresses overwhelm our days, he will welcome us. When temptations attack us, he will welcome us. When suffering and pain screams through our lives and our bodies, he will welcome us. Remember Hebrews chapter 4 that says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <laughs> Believer, what more do you need? You have a Savior who sympathizes with your weaknesses, who understands the burdens upon your heart. Why not go to him? We need only to turn and find a compassionate Savior who welcomes us. So that's the first lesson that we learn here in this passage. The second lesson is that Jesus wants to be our first resort in all situations. Jesus wants to be our first resort in all situations, verses 12 through 13. We don't know how long Jesus taught and healed from verse 11. It says that he began to do this ministry, but it, the impression is it went on for some time. It was uh, several hours, perhaps most of the day, and the disciples begin to see a problem as the sun was setting. And so they go to Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. The disciples' instinct was good. They said, Listen, we got a problem. Sun's going down, we got people here, and so they go to Jesus. They go to the head honcho, the guy who's running the show, and they say, Listen, we got a problem. But as we'll see, their request and their thought of solution is actually a bit short-sighted. But the problem was a practical one. I mean, they can see with their own eyes. The day's ending, and there's thousands of people in a remote area, and there's no food trucks, there's no little pop-up food stands, uh, and no one have Yeti coolers with food with them. I mean, they, they're all out there with nothing. And they recognize that... that Something needs to be done. And so they tell Jesus what to do. They say, listen, Jesus, we have a problem, but listen, we've already thought this through. We know of a great solution. You just need to send everybody away. And they need to go into these surrounding villages and to find two things, find lodging and get provisions. Now, the fact that they mention lodging indicates that these are not just local people. In other words, he's saying not just sending them to go home. These are people that need to find hospitality. 
They need to find someone to take them in for the night. But even if they were local, they still needed food. And it's in this problem that Jesus sees an opportunity to train his disciples. And so, look at what he says to them. Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. I mean, can you imagine the disciples? They're, you know, they've kind of huddled. They've thought, Have you seen yeah, the days still going? Okay, Jesus is still going. All right, we got all these people. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's go. We just need to tell Jesus to send these people away. So they go, you know, go over, talk to him. And then Jesus flips it back around on them. He's like, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? In fact, here, it doesn't come through in the English, but the you is emphatic. It's, it's, it's repeated in the Greek. It's like, you yourselves do something. He's pointing to them particularly. He says, no, we're not going to send them away. Rather, I want you to give them something to eat. He wants to have his disciples to think outside the box, to think of a way to solve this problem. So what is Jesus doing here? What is it, what is he, why is he asking them to, the disciples to feed them? Well, I think he's wanting these men and to test them to fully believe in who he is and to expect and to ask Jesus to do something extraordinary. He wants his disciples to so believe in him that they look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the amazing one. You are the son of God with all power and authority. What can you do with your mighty power? And this expectation by Jesus is not strange or unheard of. I mean, it's not like these guys haven't seen Jesus do other things, right? I mean, think about all that's happened already in the book of Luke, the, the calming of storms, the casting out of, of thousands of demons from somebody, the, the raising of people back to life. I mean, Jesus has done incredible things. You would think that that would be upon their minds at some level. And, of course, in all of his preaching, he's claiming to be the divine Son of God, the Spirit-appointed, uh, empowered Messiah. And also remember what came just before this. Jesus had sent them out with power and authority. They personally experienced this power going through them. In other words, they have been so acquainted with this power, you'd think that they would at least have it on their minds at some level. But here the disciples are in a new situation. There's now thousands of people here. Oh yeah, maybe I've healed one person here or I cast out a demon with this person. But now we've got thousands and, 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 and I don't know what to do. I mean, previously they'd seen Jesus work miracles on a one-on-one -on -one basis. They'd never seen him do anything for a whole crowd before. And yet Jesus wants them to turn to him in new situations like this. And so when Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat, I think he wants them to turn around and ask him to, to provide. He wants them to do something out of the power and authority that he's given them. But they are thinking too narrow-mindedly. They're not thinking what is possible through Jesus. They're only set on what man can do and provide. In other words, they're viewing the situation with physical eyes and not with spiritual ones. Look at what they say in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. <laughs> the disciples are like, listen, we lack the resources to feed everybody. And clearly they lack the solutions too that Jesus is looking for. It says they only have five 
loaves. We know from the other gospel writers, they are barley loaves, the food of the poor. Five barley loaves and two fish. The gospel of John tells us that these, this small lunch was provided by a small boy. And so the disciples have it, and they go, this is all we got. And so they respond to Jesus like they kind of think he's nuts, right? Like, okay, we've got, we don't have enough to even feed the 12, the 13 of us. Uh, what do you want to, and, and, and other gospel writers report how, how uh, Philip says, listen, we, it would take more than 200 denarii to buy enough food for all these people. That was seven months wages for the average worker. Seven months wages for one meal right now, and he's like, that wouldn't even be enough. And so they're all out of options. But again, notice, the one option they did not consider was to ask Jesus to provide. Now we can relate to the disciples' short-sightedness, can we not? We have great moments of trusting God in life and in ministry. We cling to His promises and we charge ahead and the Lord brings us through. And then... God puts us in a new situation, one we didn't see coming, one we didn't expect, and suddenly we are looking at the situation hopelessly. We're lacking trust in God, and we actually, if we're honest with ourselves, are only looking at it with physical eyes, seeing the situation purely from a human standpoint. And thus we can fail to factor God into the situation and fail to trust Him to provide. But look, just like Jesus wanted his disciples to, to trust him to provide in Bethsaida 2,000 years ago, so he wants you and I to trust him in each and every situation we find ourselves in too. The circumstances might be new to us, but they don't take Jesus by surprise. He's already there. He already knows. He is all-powerful, able to do any and everything necessary to meet our need. So the lesson we need to learn here is that Jesus must be the first resort for all situations we find ourselves in. He's not the last resort that we tried everything else and we cry, oh Lord, please help, please save. Of course, we know that he's a, he welcomes everyone compassionately. And so even when we cry out in those last desperate moments, he hears us and welcomes us. But he wants us to be, he wants to be our first resort. And so I ask you, is Jesus your first resort in all circumstances? Do you turn to him when difficult and painful events come into your life? Do you turn to him first? I think this aspect of turning to Jesus for us today relates, uh, it touches on our prayer life, right? This is how often are we praying? Are we, are we praying without ceasing? Are we in constant communion with the Lord and therefore something comes up and we turn to him and something else comes up and we turn to him? Because we're praying. This reminds me of Nehemiah, the Israelite who's been exiled into Persia. He's a cupbearer for the king. And he's heard that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And he's grieved and he's sad. And he's, he's before the, in the presence of the king. And the king says, hey, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he says, the walls of my beloved city, Jerusalem, are torn down. And then in that moment, the king says, what are you asking? In other words, he understands that there's a request underlying this statement. 
And the text says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, that says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king. In other words, in the midst of this conversation with the king, he shoots up a prayer to God and then answers the king. And it's a beautiful uh, description of what intercessory, a constant, without ceasing kind of prayer looks like, that in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the things that come our way, that we are constantly praying to the Lord, and that we're calling out to him, even when those things come our way, even in the midst of a conversation, we say, God, please help me to respond with grace. Please give me the words I need to say. Please help me to have love for this person. Please help me to know what to do. This is how it should be with us. Jesus wants to be our first resort, not our last. The third and final lesson we need to learn from this text this morning is that Jesus meets all needs abundantly. Jesus meets all needs abundantly. Verses 14 through 17. Jesus has been testing the disciples. He's been trying to ascertain from them what is the best option and best way to deal with this situation. And he's clearly seen he's not getting anywhere. They are not getting the picture, and so he steps in and completes the lesson to his disciples. He's going to show them why they should have trusted him all along, why they should have believed that he could provide. Verse 14 says, For there were about 5,000 men. The Greek word here is males, and so therefore it is uh, we don't know the count of females and children, and so this could easily have been doubled up to 10,000 people. Some estimate as high as 20,000. The point is, there was a lot of people that needed to be fed there that day. He estimates it. There's about 5,000 men. And then Jesus speaks to his disciples. He takes charge, and he says, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. This, I think this is simply a way for him to be easily distribute the food. They could organize the people, split them up, and it's administrative instruction. And verse 15 says, and they did so, and they had them all sit down. So the disciples obey Jesus' instructions, and they go out and they tell everyone to go sit down, sit in groups of 50, and they get these thousands of people all broken up into uh, groups of 50, and split up ready for Jesus to work a wonder before them. Verse 15 says, and they had them all sit down. And the word there says, is actually the word to recline. He had them all sit down and recline. It wasn't just this simple word for sit down. And it, it, it seems that he's having them recline at a banquet. He's having them sit down for a feast. And in this way, Jesus was preparing them not just to receive a little snack. They were going to receive a feast which I believe was meant to be a preview of the great messianic banquet that would be provided in his kingdom. Listen, you want to know whether this is the Messiah and whether he could provide for all those who would come to him? Let me, let me show you just a small taste of that. I'm just going to take some five loaves and two fish, and I'm going to feed all of you. Just think of, of what I can do. From an argument from the lesser to the greater... Verse 16 then describes how Jesus goes about providing for all these people. Look at it, verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing 
over them, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set them before the crowd. So before he distributes the food, he says a blessing for it. And even though Jesus is about to show his divine power by multiplying this food, he offers these elements in dependence before the Father. He's looking to heaven, indicating a prayer to God in heaven, and he blesses these things as a prayer over them in reverence and dependence upon his Father. A common Jewish prayer that we know from the second century was something that went something like this, Blessed are you, our Lord and God, who have brought bread from the earth. Could have been something as simple as that. But the point is that he thanks God, he blesses the bread and the fish, and then he begins to break them apart and telling the disciples to distribute. Now this describes a process whereby Jesus is breaking off pieces and the disciples keep on distributing. This is not just a one-time little boop and then it's, and it's done. Jesus must have been ripping bread for a long time. I mean, how many morsels of bread would be needed to feed 20,000 people? Not just to get a snack, but to be filled I mean, and, and we find out later that there were 12 baskets of extras. I mean, he kept ripping just so that there'd be 12 baskets of extras. But he's ripping this bread. He's breaking apart the fish. It's multiplying as he does it. It's unexplainable from human scientific uh, explanation. But it's clear that Jesus provided a, a meal for all of these people. I mean, can you imagine sitting there on that hillside? Maybe you brought your child to be healed, and now you're just elated with the fact that, that she's been healed and your family's enjoying this, you've been hearing Jesus teach, and, and now you're sitting down in a group of 50, and you're kind of murmuring, going, okay, how are we going to eat? Well, do they have enough food up there? I can't quite tell. And you're trying, not sure what's going to happen, and then the disciples come by with some baskets of food to eat, and so they go, oh, great, here you go, and, you, and begin to eat, and, and they get seconds and thirds, and do you want any more kids? No, I'm full, I'm good, and and they all kind of get filled up and they're realizing the baskets keep going back and this, they're just astounded to realize that this food is multiplying and this huge crowd overtaking this whole hillside is, is not just getting a taste but is getting completely satisfied. It must have been absolutely amazing to watch this take place. Luke makes it clear that Jesus provided abundantly for the people's needs. Look at it in verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. In case you thought that, that they just got all a little bite of, some, of those five loaves and just enough for everyone to get a little piece of crust and, and that was it, they make it clear that these people were satisfied. They ate enough. In fact, there were enough for 12 baskets to be left over. 12 baskets that I b believe indicates that Jesus provides for all the 12 tribes of Israel. I think also in part of his training of the 12, maybe a basket for each disciple, a little souvenir for them to take home so they never forget that Jesus can provide, right? They're just, well, I guess we underestimated that one. They get a basket of bread. But the point is, he's the great provider. And not meagerly, but overabundantly. Jesus is truly the good shepherd. Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus shows that he is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep. He provides for every need. Whether, friends, whether we be in physical need or spiritual need, Jesus not only wants to be our first resort, but he is able to abundantly provide for his people. 
The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. We shall not be in need. We shall not lack anything. And so I ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus can truly provide for you and for your family? Do you call out to him asking for him to provide? And are you content with what he does provide? I know each of us could spend hours telling of how God has provided for us in our lives. He provides for his people and our own lives tell that tale. But we can often forget that. And you need to be reminded that God indeed provides for our every need. And this should increase our faith for the next time that we are in need. Now, we don't always know how God's going to answer our prayers. And we need to remember that our wants are very different than our needs. So we might say, God, I want this, I want this, I want this. And he says, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. <laughs> I've got something better for you. I know what's best. Because Jesus is not a genie in a bottle that we just rub the lamp and get whatever we want. He is a wise, loving shepherd that gives us what we need. And so we don't need to worry about what we will wear, where we will live, what job we'll have. Jesus will provide. We simply need to trust him. Now, this doesn't mean that we sit around, let go and let God, and we just say, all right, God, do it. No, we've got stuff we've got to do. We've got to get out there. We've got to work. That's a whole other sermon. But we do all of that knowing that God is the one that ultimately provides for us. And so on that day, on the hillside outside Bethsaida, Jesus illustrated a powerful lesson for his disciples. He showed them that he could and would provide for all their needs, but they didn't learn the lesson right away. The book of Mark records that after this, they went out onto the sea and a storm swept through and they were freaked out. And Mark tells us that, that they did not, uh, that they were terrified for their lives and they were astounded at Jesus' miracle to calm the storm, he says, because they did not understand about the loaves, and they were hard-hearted. In other words, they didn't learn the lesson. Jesus provides the food, and Jesus provides the safety. You've just got to trust Jesus in all circumstances. And this should give encouragement to us this morning. Maybe you've been living an anxious life, Maybe you recognize this morning you haven't been trusting God. Maybe you've been living, trusting yourself, and you're freaked out and anxious because of it. But know you have good company. You have the disciples with you. And know that Jesus compassionately understands. And so today, through his word, he's reminding you of your need to trust him as the great provider.